couple of announcements. One is that uh, for the viewing audience, that every now and then somebody will, I'll talk to somebody after class, I'll say, boy, it didn't look like anybody was there. Well, it may not look like anybody's here tonight. We're having a terrible rainstorm, and um, I think a lot of people probably decided that discretion was the better part of valor, or let's say live streaming was the better part of valor, rather than uh, trying to manage the, the flooded streets. <clears throat> so that's that's good. The other announcement is that you y'all can just kind of spread this word around, and that is that this is not a West Houston uh, a penitentiary even though we have these new institutional gray doors that have been put in that weigh tons and can hardly be opened by the strongest of us, there will eventually be windows in those doors. But remember, the project for uh, this all started about a year and a half ago, so I don't want anybody holding their breath. You can pray, but don't hold your breath. And uh, I don't know about, I know about some of you, but uh, I feel claustrophobic. I know some people do. It just I, I, I like having that back door open where I can see something because I was thinking Sunday morning, I thought, man, I, I feel like I'm in a tomb. I feel very, very closed in. And I meant to say something about that on Sunday morning So because uh, I think people in the congregation are coming in and wondering, what is going on here? Well, so, somewhere wires got crossed or whatever and the windows were not were not put in, but they're on order. So when they arrive and schedule permits and everything, then the those things will be open. See, the other announcement is, remember, no Bible class? No, no Bible class on Thursday night? Because uh, I will be leaving in the morning for Kiev, so... Um, you can uh, be in prayer for the trip and that things go well, travel goes well, and uh, ministry goes well while we're while I'm there. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth, for the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer just to make sure that we are in fellowship, ready to study the word, ready to concentrate. Uh, Scripture says that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful we can be here this evening. We're thankful that we arrived safely. We pray for others who may have been on the road. We pray that they will uh, either return home safely or that they will arrive here, even if late, safely. Father, we continue to pray. Uh, be thankful to you in prayer for this congregation, for all the ways you provide for this congregation, and for the opportunities that we have to minister to those that we have here in this church. Father, we thank you for your word that guides and directs us and gives gives us wisdom uh, to face and handle the pressures of life, the details of life, and we pray that as we continue our growth and study in your word that we may continue to think about the things of life as you would have us. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. One other uh, announcement I left out, and that is that I heard from Taylor Williams on Sunday and Taylor will be here the next two Sundays. For those of you who don't know, Taylor uh, was ordained at Baraka Church, and he is a graduate of uh, Western Conservative Baptist Seminary, which is in Portland, Oregon. And for a number of years, he was pastor of a church in uh, San Jose, California, and retired from the pastorate about, uh, I don't think, maybe six or seven years ago, maybe a little more. But he lives in Church, Texas, which is just north of Pants, Texas. I couldn't resist that. And he is, um, anyway, he has a daughter and granddaughter, I think, living here in Houston, so he's always um, glad to come and, and uh, fill the pulpit here 
and everybody enjoys having having Taylor here. So he will be here the next couple of weeks. He had the surgery two weeks ago, and he said he's doing well, feels well, the recovery's gone well. He still has not received the pathology report uh, from the doctors yet, so you can still be in prayer for that. Uh, he, I think he was hoping he would get to the doctor this week and get that information, but uh, so far they haven't had the lab results back, so we can continue to pray for uh, pray for him. Let's open our Bibles to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. This is our 14th lesson in the Acts series, and I can uh, hear the thinking, the wheels grinding as someone says, well, we've covered 14 hours and we're down to verse um, we finished verse 5. At that rate, we will be in Acts for a while. Not on that basis. I've done taken a lot of time to try to orient us to a lot of the major issues that are going to come up again and again as we go through uh, the book of Acts, especially uh, issues and teaching and revelation concerning the kingdom, concerning the role of the Holy Spirit, concerning... Uh, the transition period between the uh, prior dispensation, the dispensation of Israel, and the current dispensation, which is the uh, church age. So uh, having laid a lot of that foundation work already, I'm not going to go back and go over that and repeat it again and again, but it's going to help us understand and interpret the things that we're going to run into, especially in the next uh, the next four chapters. So I think on that basis, we're going to, uh, uh, at least by the time I get back from Kiev, we should be pick up the pace a little bit and start uh, moving through the material in Acts a little more rapidly. Last time I focused on, began to focus on this paragraph that begins in verse 4 and extends down through, uh, down through verse 8. And the theme of this, these five verses has to do with the coming of the Holy Spirit, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which marks the, the distinction between the age of Israel and the age of the church. This is not a replacement of Israel, but Israel, due to the rejection of Jesus as a Messiah, is temporarily set aside and is temporarily set aside until... Uh, the end of the church age, that which distinguishes God's work among uh, people today is the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit. This is why I do believe, and I'm spending a lot of time on this right now in preparation for the uh, Chafer Conference in March, which I think is going to be an excellent conference, and the men that are uh, working to prepare are pulling together a lot of really good material. I think we're going to uh, advance our understanding of some aspects of, of the spiritual life and sanctification a good bit, at least pull some things together within what we would normally refer to as a as a Chaferian, uh, Schofieldian, Chaferian view of the spiritual life. And uh, sometimes people feel like, well, are we the only ones who believe some of the things we believe? No, we're not, but I think that um, it's Within the tradition that many of us come out of, uh, there is more thought put into this than in many other traditions. I'm pleased to see that in other areas there are also uh, theologians and pastors who are pushing forward in the same area. I just became aware that a man by the name of Bruce Baker, who has his master's in theology from Dallas Seminary and his, uh, is working on his Ph.D. from the Baptist Bible Seminary, up in Pennsylvania, I was pastor for a number of years, wrote a book called Spiritual Maturity, where, wherein in his uh, introduction he specifically states that he is j- just teaching and writing within the same tradition as Lewis Berry Chafer. Uh, that is, you know, really encouraging, and I just found out within the last week or so that uh, he's moved to Houston and he's on the faculty at the uh, College of Biblical Studies. So there are numerous people out there, not as numerous as there were at one time, but there are numerous people out there who are um, indeed thinking, writing, preaching, teaching within our tradition. But I was having a conversation with Jim Myers this morning, and I said, you know, our numbers are getting small. He said, brother, our numbers are, are dramatically diminishing. 
It's amazing the more I study contemporary theologies and contemporary commentaries, the more I'm wondering what in the world has happened to American evangelicalism. I mean, that which was taught and that which was assumed to be true across the board by every seminary professor I had when I was at Dallas Seminary and by most of the major Bible teachers and pastors uh, within a dispensational tradition, at, at least, if not a broader tradition, uh, through the 70s is just been fragmented into a uh, just an immeasurable number of, of, of uh, just shards everywhere. And it seems like every couple of years somebody comes up with some kind of new idea that uh, you wonder where in the world they get that. It just runs contrary to that which was um, handed down and passed down from one generation to another. And I think that's just another sign of the uh, failure of our age to put uh, to submit our authority to the uh, to the authority I mean submit our will to the authority of God's word. Well, <clears throat> in Acts we see the beginning of the church age, and there's the hint in various passages of Scripture that we'll see these kinds of trends and cycles throughout the church age of apostasy and recovery, apostasy and recovery. So this should not surprise us. Just because we live in another age of apostasy does not mean that we're any closer. Well, we're closer, but that it doesn't mean that the rapture is uh, right around the corner, even though some people seem to think that that's what that implies. As we look at Acts 1-4, we see... Jesus continuing to instruct the disciples about the kingdom, which has been his major theme, as I pointed out in the last couple of lessons, during the intervening period from his resurrection to his ascension. The focus isn't on the kingdom and what is going to happen when the kingdom arrives, but on the reality of the postponement of the kingdom because the king has been uh, rejected and what the major uh, major elements of the intervening age will be, and that especially relates to the coming of the Holy Spirit. So as the uh, disciples are gathered together, he uh, commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but they were to wait there for the coming of the, the promise of God, specifically related uh, to the Holy Spirit, the promise of the Father, which you heard from me. And in Acts 1.5, he explains that as related to what John had said, John the Baptist had said as, as, uh, prior to Jesus' ministry, that the one would come after him who would baptize by means of water and by means of fire. And so we have the passages in uh, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, as well as in Acts 1-5 here, all talk about the coming of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit specifically, as a future event. But Jesus adds something here at the end of Acts 1-5, and he says it will be not many days from now. And last time, as I introduced the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and last time we went through that entire doctrine uh, in one hour, focusing on understanding the meaning and significance of the phrase to be baptized by means of the Spirit, I pointed out that in the Old Testament there was, a, there was the prophecy and the promise that there would be a new covenant that God would enact uh, between himself and the house of Israel and the house of Judah, and that one of the distinguishing characteristics of that would be the coming of the Holy Spirit in a way that had never uh, been in previous history. Passages such as Ezekiel 11, 19, uh, Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27 uh, Ezekiel 37:14 all present the promise that God would put the Holy Spirit inside of you. And in these passages, the you always refers to Israel. It's not that he's ignoring the Gentile world. He's not, it's not that he's saying it's not going to happen to the Gentiles. But this is the primary promise of the new covenant is that there would be the universal indwelling of God the Holy Spirit in every uh, every Jewish person. They would all be believers and they would all be regenerate and the Holy Spirit would indwell each of them in unique, in a unique way so that everyone would know God so that no one would need to teach his neighbor. So this will be a very different 
type of uh, spiritual environment than what we have uh, what we have today. So that's what Jesus uh, is speaking of, and he t- he connects this. He says, "You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit." And the disciples understood this, and that this idea was somehow connected with uh, with the coming of the kingdom. Uh, for John had talked about baptism in the context of his message to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and we saw in those passages the same elements we saw in Acts one five the last time that just as John performed the action of baptism. And he used water as the means of identifying the person with repentance. So Jesus would baptize those who believed in him using the Holy Spirit as the means of identifying them with himself. Romans 6 makes it clear that in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, this is a legal or judicial decision similar to justification in that God legally or judicially identifies us with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And by using God the Holy Spirit in the process of regeneration and cleansing, all of these things come together uh, in this action so that the individual uh, believer, therefore, is cleansed positionally, legally, so that he is identified with Christ and uh, placed in union with him which indicates our new position in Christ where we are free from the um, tyranny of the, of, uh, of the sin nature. Now, as we look at the breakdown of the definition I gave at the end of class last night, I broke it down just to talk about each of these distinct phrases. First of all, it should be rendered the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit. It's in the English version, as I pointed out, the uh, preposition the Greek preposition in plus the uh, noun uh, baptismos in the dative case indicates instrumentality. But in English, this phrase in, or excuse me, not um, baptism, but in pneumity, the phrase in pneumity in plus the dative of pneuma, that this is the phrase that you have in every one of these passages. In Matthew and Mark and Luke and Acts 1, in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, all of these passages use that same phrase. And yet in English, in some places you will have of the Spirit, other places with the Spirit, other places by the Spirit, and that's led to confusion where people thought, based on the different preposition in English, that they were talking, the text was talking about different uh, ministries of the Holy Spirit. So it's all one ministry, but this ministry is, is a legal Action. It is not an experiential action. This is the problem that you have with with the rise of the Pentecostal movement uh, coming out of the holiness movement in the 19th century, because they began to understand this as a as an experiential thing. And if you had not experienced this with certain associated signs, such as uh, speaking in tongues, then you had not experienced this, and you were only had part of the solution, that is redemption, but you didn't have all of the solution, which they would call uh, complete sanctification, which would enable you, therefore, to live at a higher plane of spirituality. That, and there are various, various forms of that in the, in the 19th century. All of that gets cleared up when you understand that there's only one thing, one phrase that's used all the way through uh, the New Testament, and it is this phrase, baptized by means of the Holy Spirit. The word baptism means to dip or plunge or immerse, but it has a meaning that goes beyond its literal meaning, and that is it, ha- it signified something. It was used as, as a synonym for identification, that by physically immersing an object into something else, that object is identified with this something else. For example, in the ancient Greek army, the uh, recruits at the end of their initial training would take their spears or their swords and would dip them or immerse them into a uh, a bucket or a container of pig's blood, blood, which is signifying an identification of the weapon 
with blood and that they were ready to go to war and ready to, um, ready to kill the enemy. So that's the significance of baptism. It always had to do with identification. So water baptism simply is a physical symbol representing the fact that the individual believer has been identified with Christ in spirit baptism. So we have the baptism by means of the spirit. The spirit doesn't perform the work Christ does. The spirit is the means for effecting the end result. So the second line, it's the work of Christ. That is, Christ is the one who performs the action. He is the agent. Whereby, at the moment of faith alone in Christ alone, this is one of numerous things that, that take place simultaneously at the instant that a person trusts in Christ as Savior. People list these in various different ways. I've heard them enumerated everywhere from uh, 33 things to 39 things to 150 things, depending on how you break them down. Because the original list, which was set forth in Lewis Berry Chaper's Systematic Theology, I believe was uh, 33 or 34 things. But he had numerous sub-points had multiple elements to it. For example, all the ministries of God the Holy Spirit were listed under one point. Well, if you break those out as each as an individual point, then you'll come up with a different number. So the number really doesn't matter. The reality is that there are there's a vast host of things which God does instantly, simultaneously in the life of every believer at the instant of faith alone. One is where we see the imputation of Christ's righteousness, and at the moment that that happens, speaking sort of um, uh, anthropomorphically, at the moment that that happens, at that same instant, simultaneously, we're declared to be righteous. And on the basis of that declaration, all of this is in terms of logical order, not chronological order, on the basis of that uh, declaration of righteousness, we are given new life, which is regeneration. There is a legal cleansing of all sin that takes place in that, li- in that individual's life so that they are uh, positionally, that is legally forgiven, that forgiveness is applied to them, uh, and they are identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And the result of that is that they become a new creature in Christ. So at the moment of faith alone in Christ alone, Christ uses the Holy Spirit in the act of regeneration to identify the believer with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and with the result that he becomes a new creature in Christ. Now, this is not experiential, as I said. Therefore, it's a legal action by the Supreme Court of Heaven in the same way that God the Father looks on the believer sees the righteousness of Christ, and declares him to be righteous. And on that basis, the person is justified by faith in faith alone, in Christ alone, not on the basis of his own righteousness, but on the basis of the righteousness of Christ. Now, we'll get into all the details of that in our study of Romans on Thursday night, and most of you know uh, the doctrine of justification by faith well enough to understand that. Baptism of the Holy Spirit is the same kind of legal pronouncement whereby we are cleansed legally by the Holy Spirit and identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection and placed in union uh, with him. Now, another phrase that's used in relation to the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the one that's the verb that's used at the end of 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For by one spirit, we were all baptized or all identified or all placed, legally placed and joined together in one body, whether Jew or Greek, whether slave or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. Now, that's a different metaphor. In drinking something, we are taking something into ourselves, aren't we? Uh, anyone can drink, but that's not the point of this metaphor. Drinking of the spirit in, involves something that comes into us. And so this relates the baptism of the Holy Spirit to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the life of every single believer uh, in the church age. Now, what is interesting, and I don't want to go off on sidetracks, but I think every now and then you ought to know some of the weird trends that are going on in the world today. But one of the weird trends that I've run into is a group of Reformed Baptist theologians 
who really don't like the, either the free grace gospel or dispensationalism. And they are associated with a seminary in Detroit, the Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary, produce a journal, and I've read a number of articles by uh, the men at that at that school because they're related to these topics that we're teaching at the uh, Chafer Conference in March. And one of these articles, and several of these articles, they put forth a view which I believe is unique to them. Uh, I don't know everything there is to know about church history, so maybe there were uh, there are precedents for this, but I've never run into it before. And their view was that every believer has been indwelt by the Holy Spirit since Adam, since Adam first believed in God. See, that's their replacement theology showing up that there's no distinction between Israel and the church. But how they identify the indwelling of the Spirit is regeneration. Indwelling of the Spirit is regeneration. That's how they define it. Regeneration means a person is is born again or made spiritually alive when he was spiritually dead. There is nothing in regeneration that indicates the personal indwelling of God the Holy Spirit. And yet that that's their view. So what happens is all of a sudden they have to start trying to find these ministries of the Holy Spirit that are that we say are unique to the church age and start pushing them back all the way to the Garden of Eden. And, or, and, and what that gets you is another form of replacement theology where the Israel in the Old Testament is the church and the church in the New Testament is spiritual Israel. And so we get ba- always get back to this one horrible heresy that seeks to uh, destroy the, unique, the uniqueness and the distinctiveness of of the seed of Abraham and God's special promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the descendants there. So here we have 1 Corinthians 12, 13, relating baptism to indwelling. We were all made to drink of one spirit. This is the verb potizo, which it just basically means to, to drink. Now this again connects this in a similar way, it's not the same thing, but in a similar way to various passages in the Old Testament. And what I'm saying here isn't that the indwelling of the Spirit or the baptism of the Spirit are the fulfillment of these Old Testament prophecies, but there's a similarity. The reason they're different is because the kingdom did not come in in Acts chapter 2. Jesus did not establish the Messianic kingdom in Acts chapter 2. What happens there, as we'll see when we get to uh, uh, Peter's sermon where he quotes from Joel, nothing that Joel predicted happened on the day of Pentecost. What did happen on the day of Pentecost, which was speaking in tongues, was not mentioned by Peter, I mean by Joel in Joel 2, 38 and 39, all Peter is doing is saying the kind of thing that is happening today that, you, the, you, that hit, the people in front of him had witnessed is similar to that which was prophesied by Joel. And so rather than seeing the kingdom come in on the day of Pentecost, another dispensation came in that had not been predicted in the Old Testament. That's why it's called a mystery doctrine that was not re- previously revealed. But it has characteristics that are similar to characteristics that will be seen uh, under the new covenant in the millennial kingdom, but they are not the same. But that this I'm quoting these passages here to show that the Old Testament expectation of the coming of the Spirit, because that's the framework of the disciples when Jesus says, uh, you will be baptized by the Holy Spirit not many days from now, and their response is, well, does that mean the kingdom is coming in now? So in passages like Isaiah 32:15, where we read, "Until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fertile field, the fertile field is considered as a forest." So this is a Old Testament prophecy, looking forward to the time that uh, that when the Spirit would come, and then the kingdom, the Messianic kingdom, would appear. Uh, the, this idea of pouring out the Spirit is seen in Proverbs 1:23 where wisdom is personified, that is, the wisdom, the doctrine of Scripture, turn to my reproof, behold, I will pour out my Spirit upon you, 
uh, I will make my, no, my words known to you. So this is a personification of wisdom, which is really just the mental attitude, uh, the thinking of God. And then, of course, Joel 2.28 passage I just mentioned, uh, it shall come to pass afterward, that I, and the afterward is after the tribulation, the period of Daniel's 70th week or the period of, the, uh, of Jacob's wrath, afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions. That's the passage Peter quotes in Acts 2. It says nothing about speaking in tongues. And none of those events, prophecy, dreaming, or seeing visions, occurred on the day of Pentecost. And then Jesus himself predicted something similar to this in John 7, 38 and 39. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He's talking about these Old Testament uh, predictions of the role of the Holy Spirit in the millennial kingdom. This he spoke of the Holy Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Again, an indication that the Holy Spirit is not given or poured out prior to the day of Pentecost. There's no indwelling of the Holy Spirit, no baptism of the Holy Spirit, no filling of the Holy Spirit until Jesus is glorified. He has to be ascended to heaven uh, and glorified at the right hand of the Father before the Holy Spirit uh, would descend. And so this is applied to believers that there's going to be this ministry of the Holy Spirit that is similar to but not identical to that which had been prophesied in the Old Testament. And then um, one other reference would be Joel 32.40, which is talking about this new covenant uh, that would come upon them uh, that God says, that, but I will put my fear in their hearts so that they will not depart from me. Just speaking of this unique way in which the new age uh, develops. So last time we went through the passage on the, uh, Jesus telling them that uh, the Holy Spirit would come not many days from then. And then their immediate response is, which I think is a logical response considering all that they had read and heard. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Now, it's important to note that Jesus doesn't correct them. He doesn't say, you guys still don't get it. It's a spiritual kingdom, not a political kingdom. He doesn't say that. He doesn't correct their understanding of the kingdom. What he does correct is their understanding of the timing of the kingdom. And they understand that the kingdom has somehow been, it's even at this point, during the period of time between the, uh, uh, the resurrection and the ascension, that there's no kingdom. It needs to be restored completely, that there's no kingdom at all. And, and they say, so is it at this time that you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? And so we see again that they have an understanding of the kingdom, that it is an Israel kingdom. It is a kingdom that is the fulfillment of the promises that God made to David to put a descendant of David upon the throne of David to rule from, a, from David's throne in the literal earthly Jerusalem, and it would be a geographical, uh, political, economic kingdom on the earth, and that, as Isaiah says in Isaiah 2, all nations would then come to Israel and come to the temple in Jerusalem uh, to worship God. So it is, they clearly understand this to be a physical, geopolitical, earthly kingdom, and Jesus doesn't correct them. What he does say to them in verse 7 is, it is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Now, when we look at these two Greek words that we have here, we have uh, the first word is chronos, which is translated times. And this emphasizes time from the perspective of events in succession, one event coming after another, uh, reaching a certain uh, conclusion as seen in its use in Galatians 4.4, where we read, In the fullness of time God sent forth his Son. So this word is often used to refer to events in fulfillment of prophetic predictions when things come one after the other to reach a conclusion, to reach a fulfillment. The second word that's used in Acts 1-7 is the word uh, translated in the New American Standard as seasons. Uh, uh, well, in the New King James' seasons and in other translations as epochs. 
and it has the it looks at time from the perspective of broad expanses of time, what we might re- refer to as ages. So there's a clear distinction here between times and ages. Times refers to events and the progression of events leading to a conclusion, and uh, ages refers to long periods of time. So God has clearly divided history, human history, into distinct periods of time, and those distinct periods of time lead to an ultimate conclusion so that history is directional. History has a focus. History has a purpose. And God is moving history to this ultimate and final conclusion. It is only in biblical Judeo-Christian thinking that history is viewed as something that is linear and directional. The Greeks had a cyclical view of history. Hindus have a cyclical view of history. Others have uh, either non-directional or haphazard views of history. But only through the influence of uh, of biblical Judeo-Christian teaching does history have direction. Now you can say, well, what about Marxism? Well, that's why they call Marxism a Judeo-Christian heresy is because these heretical views come in and they borrowed directionality and a linear view of history from Christianity and then they perverted it. And so you have a number of post-Christian philosophies that developed over the last 2,000 years that borrow this idea of directionality, but pagan, pagan religions do not produce a directional view of history. That's why it's only within a Judeo-Christian uh, heritage that history is important. History is not important if history just always repeats itself or there's always a, a cycle and it's not going anywhere. Then you can't learn anything from history. But if history is going somewhere, then history has meaning and it has purpose and it's going to lead to a certain conclusion and there's going to be a resolution of problems. And that is what we get from a Judeo-Christian view of history, and it is only within a Judeo-Christian view that you have real history. Now, you may hear people say, or someone might object and say, well, what about, what about Thucydides or what about Herodotus? These, Herodotus is considered the father of history. He's a Greek uh, writer who wrote in the uh, uh, 5th century B.C. Thucydides wrote on the Peloponnesian Wars. But they wrote something that would be more on the order of chronic, of a chronicle. A chronicle is just simply recording events that transpired. But history, real history, isn't just writing down that this happened on this date, then on the next day so-and-so did this, and this battle occurred, and this is what happened. But real history assigns meaning to those events and fits them within an overall pattern and structure of history. It is the application of philosophy to an understanding of the events as they are taking place. The modern term for this is called historiography. And so it's in this kind of a context that you have that you have interpretive action taking place on the events of history, and that's what you have only within a Judeo-Christian framework. And the Old Testament gives us God's view of history as he goes through it. He focuses on key events and then interprets those, weaves them together within a certain framework. So we learn that history is going somewhere and that history, as God's designed it, has different uh, periods of time assigned to it. Now, another word that is used... Uh, in this is the word ionos, which also refers to an age. So when we look, when I look at what we call dispensations, first of all, I break things down into larger blocks of time. For example, and these are ages. A dispensation, the word dispensation, as we've studied in the past, comes from the Greek word oikonomos, where we get our word economy. If you listen to the words, they sound very similar. An oikonomos is a house law. Oikos is the Greek for house. Uh, Namos is the Greek for law. And so the word came to mean, came to refer to an administration. For example, how parents administer or manage a household when there are infants in the household is one way. 
But when there are adolescents in the household, uh, the house will be managed or administered in a different way. And if they grow up and stay in the house, as happens so often today, and your mom and dad and you have adult children living at home, then the house law or the administration of your uh, kingdom, since the uh, your home is your castle and that's your kingdom, the administration of your kingdom is going to be different than it was when those children were toddlers. And so you see that the, the rules basically same, are, are the same. There are similarities that run through those different periods of time. They all reflect the character and the values of the parents, but because the children, the inhabitants, are different stages of maturity, there are modifications to those rules as you move through the process of, or the progress of time. And that's like a dispensation, or economos is the word from which we get our uh, English translation uh, for dispensation. Now, dispensations, as I've defined a dispensation in the past, a dispensation occurs when there is new revelation given from God. Now, an age does not necessarily uh, uh, acts with a change in revelation, but it's different from that of a dispensation because you have different changes in uh, the administration of the dispensation, for example, when God creates Adam and Eve, you only have one race, whatever Adam and Eve were, that's it. And they're in the garden in an age of absolute uh, perfection, perfect environment, and an age of, of, of innocence. That term should be understood in the same way that justification and confession and baptism of the Holy Spirit are understood, not as a term indicating uh, some sort of naivete, but a judicial term. They were judicially innocent. There's a difference between being judicially innocent and not guilty. And it was an age of judicial innocence because they had not sinned. Now, when they sin, what happens? God shows up in the Garden of Eden and says, okay, this is how things are going to change. And he addresses the serpent, addresses the woman, and addresses the man, and things change. There's a new administration now as a result of sin. But there, you still just have Gentiles. There's another shift that takes place after the flood, another modification of the covenant with the Noahic covenant, but you still only have one race. There's only Gentiles. So you go through these three dispensations, each one characterized by a change in revelation, a change in administration, but it's the age of the Gentiles. But after the failure at the Tower of Babel, God says, I'm going to call out one person. I'm going to call out uh, Abraham, and I'm going, instead of working with the whole human race, I'm just going to work through Abraham and his descendants, and the whole of the human race will be blessed through Abraham. And so that began the age of Israel. It is a larger period of time that can be subdivided into different dispensations because of uh, modifications in the administration. So you have the dispensation of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob, Joseph up to the time of Mount Sinai. Then there's new revelation given at Mount Sinai. The new revelation given at Mount Sinai is the Mosaic law. The administration changed. We now have a theocracy. There are some that might even subdivide the subsequent period between a literal theocracy and the monarchy as something of a minor sub-dispensational shift because God's the king from Sinai to the rejection of his kingship in 1 Samuel chapter 8. And then following 1 Samuel chapter 8, you have the authorization for a literal human king. And you have Saul, David, and Solomon, then the division of the kingdom into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And then that continues until the northern kingdom goes out under divine judgment in 722 and the southern kingdom in 586. Then after the 70-year captivity, there's a restoration of some of those who were expelled from the land in uh, 586. They return in 538, rebuild the temple in 516, and then you have a uh, an administrative kingdom, so to speak, under the hegemony of various, uh, various uh, empires in the ancient world until we come up to the first century. And then with the rejection of the Messiah... There is a, another judgment upon Israel in A.D. 70, and you're full-blown into the church age, which is just a large 
now a long age period that is not subdivided. Perhaps we could subdivide it into pre-canon and post-canon, but that seems just to be a minor, uh, a minor change. The church age ends with the, uh, with the rapture of the church, followed by the seven years of the tribulation. Then we have the messianic kingdom or the millennial age. So this is how you see the relationship between ages and dispensations. So the disciples come together and they ask him this question. Are you going to restore the kingdom? And he says, he doesn't say, you've got the wrong idea of the kingdom. It's going to be a spiritual kingdom. I'm going to rule in your hearts and I'm going to rule absently while uh, from sitting at the Father's right hand. He doesn't say anything like that. He says, no, you just have your timing off. It's not for you to know the times and the seasons. Is that an absolute statement? No, it's not an absolute statement. Jesus tells them prior to the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, it's not for you to know these things right now. But remember, this is in 33. Some 20 years later, in the early 50s, when Paul is writing to the church at Thessalonica, and they have various questions related to the coming of Christ, he says in 1 Thessalonians 5.1, Now as to the times, chronos, and the epochs, kairos, you have no need of anything to be written to you. Why? Because they've already been instructed by Paul regarding uh, these prophetic things, regarding the times and the seasons. And he uses the same words that Jesus used in, first, in uh, Acts 1, 6 to 7. So Jesus says, it's not for you to know these things right now. But by 20 years later, these will, that information will have come through the revelation given to the Apostle Paul uh, regarding the various uh, uh, dispensational uh, and truths and mystery doctrines uh, that are revealed within the Pauline epistles. So Acts 1, 6, and 7, the disciples aren't getting a uh, nasty hand slap here. They're simply being told it's, this isn't the right time yet. You're not supposed to know at this point about the times and the seasons. That hasn't been given to you. It's going to be given to another apostle who hasn't come on the scene yet. And so there is uh, that postponement. But what he does say, and notice the contrast, he says in verse 7, he says, it's not for you to know times or seasons our times are epochs, which the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive uh, power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Notice the contrast here. The contrast is it's not for you to know times and seasons. Get your, get your mind off of the kingdom coming right now and everything changing. Everybody wants utopia to come right now. Uh, instead, there's going to be this intervening age, again, reinforcing what he's been teaching on the, on the uh, uh, mysteries of the kingdom. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, and that's the small circle, and Judea and Samaria, that's the larger circle, even to the ends of the earth. And that is includes at least the Roman Empire at that time, if not beyond. Uh, often the phrase "ends of the earth" is uh, just a um, an idiom at that time for the extent of the Roman Empire, the extent of the known world. So you clearly see this progression, which is really the outline and structure of the Book of Acts. The first uh, five chapters into chapter six, verse seven, focuses on the what is happening in Jerusalem and what the apostles are teaching and proclaiming in Jerusalem. And then a persecution uh, develops, and they are scattered out from Jerusalem, and they begin to, you see the expansion of their witness into Judea and Samaria. And here the focus is on, uh, after Stephen, uh, on uh, Stephen, on Philip, and on the ministry of the dis disciples into Judea and Samaria. And then after the salvation of the Apostle Paul, the church is expanded to Antioch and then beyond through the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. And this is covered in chapters 9 uh, through 28. And so that emphasizes that structure of Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria, and then to the remotest part of the earth. 
Now, let's just make a couple of observations here. The you in this passage is a second-person plural. He is specifically talking about the 11. This is one of the hardest, I think one of the most difficult and challenging aspects of interpretation of some of the statements that Jesus makes to the disciples is when is he saying this is only for you guys, it's only for you 11 or 12, or it's for you 11 and 12 as representatives of the rest of the church, and it's going to be true of them as well. And and especially in the upper room discourse, there are some difficult passages there trying to discern whether he's talking to only the 12. Uh, of course, they were called the 12 even though uh, Judas is gone. We'll get into that when I get back from Kiev in the remainder of the chapter. 12 was an important number in Israel. And you, it was a number of completion. And so you had the 12 tribes. How many people here, don't raise your hand, how many people here can tell me how many tribes there were? Were there 12? Yes or no? No, there's like 13. You never, and, and every time you have a listing of the 12 tribes, it's a different list. Every time you have a different list of the, the, the 12 disciples, was Matthias one or not? Well, we don't know. Well, wait a minute. Revelation says that the foundation of the New Jerusalem has the name of the 12 apostles. It also says that the 12, the names of the 12 tribes of Israel are going to be over the gates. Which 12? There's 13. So there's an ambiguity here. We don't really know. Either way, because there's 13 apostles and there's 13 tribes, but they're called the 12. Just something little conundrum for y'all to work through over the next couple of weeks while I'm gone. I wouldn't want you want y'all to get bored trying to think your way through some of those things. So okay, what we have here is the plural and he's only addressing the eleven. They're still called the twelve, but there's only eleven because Judas is gone. Uh, and he's just addressing them, and that's clear because he's giving them the marching order to go from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the uttermost part of the earth, that you guys wait here until the Holy Spirit comes. He's not talking to all Christians. If he was talking to all Christians, then as soon as we get saved, we've got to hightail it over to Jerusalem to wait around for the Holy Spirit to get there. But since the Holy Spirit gets there as soon as we're saved, we can't get to Jerusalem fast enough. That was a problem the Pentecostals had. They tried, said, you got to tarry. That was the old King James English. Uh, in other words, wait for the Holy Spirit. He's already come. Okay, you is a second person plural, so he's specifically teaching the 11. You guys wait here in Jerusalem, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Second person plurals here. And then... And what we have here is a consequence of that. The result of the Holy Spirit coming is you will be my witnesses and uh, take the gospel to the remotest part of the earth. So they are to wait. They will receive power. And when you look at the two verbs for receiving power and you shall be, these are future passive indicatives. This event was still viewed as yet future. It's passive, meaning they didn't have anything to do with making it happen. They were just, it was something that would happen to them. They would receive power and they would become, as a result of receiving that power from the Holy Spirit, they would become witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost part of the earth. Now, as soon as Jesus says this, while he's, as soon as he's spoken that, while they watched, he's taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. Now, this day wasn't cooperative. There were no clouds in the sky, not too many clouds in the sky in Jerusalem in June. But this is the Mount of Olives where this took place. In fact, if you look right here, you see the steeple of the Church of the Ascension, which is the traditional location where Jesus ascended. Now, traditional means that on a scale of one to five, one means it's pure guess, and five means it's, it's pretty solid evidence. This is closer to a one than it is to a five. The Mount of Olives is pretty large, so somewhere up there was where Jesus was with his disciples when he ascended um, into heaven. And it says that while they watched, he was taken up. It's a passive verb. He is... Uh, received into heaven. He's taken up. He receives the action that takes place here 
as God basically receives him into heaven. And we're told a cloud received him out of their sight, and clouds are often used in association with the presence of God. Just as a cloud received him and he disappeared from sight, so he will return at the rapture in the clouds. Clouds, again, many times in Scripture, clouds are associated with the presence uh, presence of God. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. I've always loved that picture. It just captures the essence of what it, what it must have been like as they were um, somehow surprised that all of a sudden Jesus just, you know, elevates right up into heaven. Byzantine art portrays it very symbolically. You have the two men, the two angels here. You have the disciples here on the ground. Of course, you have Mary here. And then you have the other saints in heaven here as Jesus is ascending higher than all toward the throne of God, which theologically this is a, a, a pretty good uh, demonstration of what happens. Jesus is elevated above all creation at this point in reference to his humanity as he is taken and exalted uh, by God to, and placed at the right hand of the Father. Now these two angels addressed them and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand there gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come, or other translations say, in the same manner uh, as you saw him go into heaven. So just as he ascended, he will return. And this is a reference to the second coming. Just as he ascended, literally, physically, bodily, so he will return literally, physically, bodily uh, to the earth. Now, just a couple of other passages to remind you of the ascension and how this is viewed spatially by the writers of Scripture. Hebrews 4.14 connects the ascension to his present priesthood. He has to be glorified the right hand of the Father before his priestly ministry on our behalf begins. Uh, we're told that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. This would be the second heaven. Scripture looks at the heavens in terms of three locations. The first is the atmosphere around the earth. The second has to do with the the universe, the starry skies. And then the third is the throne of God. So Jesus passes through the heavens uh, using the uh, verb diarchomai to come through, go through, pass through to a location. So there's a geographical movement that takes place uh, spatial movement as Jesus goes through the universe to something beyond the universe, which is the throne of God. This then began, becomes the basis for our uh, <clears throat> great promise, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. So you have a human being now sitting at the right hand of the Father, waiting for the kingdom to be given to him. Ephesians one twenty to twenty two also relates to the ascension, talking about what God worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenlies, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age but also in that which is to come. And He put all things in subjection under His feet and gave Him His head over all things to the church. So the ascension is vital because in the ascension he he is glorified and it is at that time that he is uh, recognized again as the eternal Son of God. We studied that Sunday morning in Psalm 2. And he is given the authority, the headship, over this new in, uh, thing that will come about called the church. So that takes us down through verse 11, which is a good break. We've seen the last message of Jesus to his disciples and his ascension, and that sets things up for uh, what takes place the next, in the next verse, verse 12, the next event when the disciples get together in the upper room in order to begin uh, ad- ad- making administrative and management decisions in relationship to their, own, uh, to their own ministry. So when I get back from Kiev, we'll get into the upper room uh, conference in Acts 1 as prelude to the events of the day of Pentecost. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to study your word this evening and to uh, continue to uh, get a greater understanding of what uh, Jesus taught with reference to the postponement of the kingdom 
and the intervening age, which is the age in which we live, that would be characterized by the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the filling of the Spirit, and the indwelling of the Spirit. Father, we pray that you would help us uh, as we understand these things to gain a fresh appreciation for the unique spiritual life which we have and all of the spiritual assets that you've given us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.